So this morning, this morning we come to the end of the first chapter in Paul's letter to Timothy. And the Apostle Paul has defended his understanding of the law and the gospel. And we might summarize it in this way. God's law shows us right and wrong. It functions sort of like a mirror. It shows us our sin. And we talked about how we don't get to decide as humans for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. God created us. God gets to decide what's right and what is wrong. We also talked about the fact that the world the world will always push Christians towards a more tolerant view of sin. But Paul urges Timothy not to let false teaching take root in the church. And very often that false teaching concerns our understanding of the law. And there are two major errors. The first is... The law, uh, when those who try to make the law irrelevant, okay, who teach that, well, the law doesn't matter anymore, it's not that big of a deal, just focus on the gospel, right? That would be one error. The other error tries to make the law our means of salvation and says that, you know, this is how you get right with God is by doing the things that God requires, which is also false. And so the Apostle Paul responds to both of those errors by offering himself as an example of the power of the gospel. He calls himself the chief of sinners. And he argues that the grace and mercy of God stand in sharp contrast to our sin. And so we talked about last time that the gospel is then received in two movements. The first being, I'm worse than I think I am. But the second is that God's grace is sufficient. I'm worse than I think I am, but God's grace is sufficient to cover my sin. And so now we're ready to continue verse 18. He says this, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So Timothy had been identified at a young age as being someone who would be a future leader in the church. Read about that, different places, Acts, other letters of Paul. But notice how Paul describes Timothy's job as a pastor. He calls it warfare. And my guess is that most Christians don't think of this life as a Christian as a battle. And what that means is that it makes it extremely easy for the enemy to take us out. The Bible consistently portrays this life as a battle 
between spiritual forces of good and spiritual forces of evil. The Bible consistently teaches that there is a real spiritual enemy and that he is at work in the world constantly attacking the two things that Paul mentions here. Your faith and your conscience. And better yet, if he can convince you that you're not even at war, that it's not really that serious what's going on in this world, then he will have his way with both your faith and your conscience because you're completely off guard. And the Bible calls him the father of lies. And he will feed your doubts about yourself. He will feed your doubts about God every waking moment if you let him. And so Paul says, fight. Fight the good warfare. He continues, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. There he mentions the name of this great enemy. That they may learn not to blaspheme. Now notice that Paul specifically mentions their names. He mentions also the sin they've committed. And then he mentions the consequences of that sin. We think that being handed over to Satan probably means that these two men were excommunicated, which means that they were officially cast out of the church, of of course with the hope that they would repent, which he says that they would recognize and learn not to do this, right? But I want to remind you of something from last week, okay? So when Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Do you remember what sins he said he had committed? He said, formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. So Paul says, I was a blasphemer. And what sin did these two men commit that got them kicked out of the church? Blasphemy. Blasphemy is showing contempt for God, probably in this case by false teaching. And apparently that will get you kicked out of the church. But we might ask, was it fair for Paul to have these men cast out of the church when they had committed the same sin as Paul? And this is where our modern tendency, where the world is pushing us to tolerate sin, to be soft on the, you know, our attitude towards other people's sin, even that it does affect our judgment. Okay, the difference between Paul and these two men was not their sin, but their repentance. Paul knew himself to be formerly a blasphemer. He 
confesses that. He openly admits it. But these two men have not yet repented. They have not yet recognized that what they have done is sin and have responded to that knowledge by turning back to Christ and forsaking that and seeking to teach correct things. So why were they cast out? It's so that they will recognize a need for repentance and learn not to blaspheme. Remember, Paul says, God is patient with us in our sin. He extends mercy and grace to even the worst of sinners, which he calls himself. But God doesn't allow us to continue living in unrepentant sin. To believe that something is okay with God when it's not okay with God. So I wanted to point that out because that's an important correction to the way we think about sin and repentance. If it's not okay with God, then it's not okay with God. Okay? And so now, with that said, we're ready to move on to chapter 2 where Paul is going to give some instructions for the church. And this is what he wants us to do. Verse 1. First of all then, okay, then, as a result of what I just said, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It's the very first instruction that he gives. He says, I want you to pray. I want you to pray. And I want you to pray for everyone. I want you to pray for everyone. I want you to pray even for the people that you least want to pray for. And he then specifically mentions for kings and for all who are in high positions. That's a tough order for Christians in the first century because that's where persecution came from primarily. So for our purposes, it's as if Paul is saying to us, I want you to pray even for the people who can make life more difficult for you as a Christian. I want you to pray for your leaders in the church. I want you to pray for your leaders in the community, for your leaders at work, for political leaders, government officials, literally anybody that you can think of that God has put in your life and you know who they are. Pray for them. Why? He says, so that we can live a peaceful <clears throat> a peaceful and quiet life, godly And dignified. So it suggests to me that Paul sees the battle that he's been describing, this battle, this warfare, he sees it being won not with words and arguments primarily, but with prayer and a godly example. That's how I read this. You might also say, as a side note, perhaps that Paul is urging us to be more passionate in our prayer than, let's say, in our politics. 
right? to be praying for those who have charge over us. I think it's also worth mentioning that the Bible frequently encourages Christians to live a quiet life of prayer. And the reason I think this is important is because that is not the emphasis of modern Christianity in most cases. Okay? Most of the popular books and articles and podcasts that you will hear that are coming out of kind of the broad evangelical church today, what they're encouraging Christians to do is to do big, bold things for Jesus, right? Give everything up and do all this. And and really, according to Paul, what Jesus really wants from us in most cases, for most Christians, is a simple, humble life of prayer. And so I just want to show you that that's, and that's not just one place, it's all over the New Testament. And so be careful of putting on people, especially new Christians, this burden that they're supposed to now do some big thing for Jesus when really it's this simple life of prayer, humility, godliness that is what Christ actually wants for us. Okay. But why specifically does Paul encourage us to pray for all people? He continues, verse 3. He says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, verse 4 is one of the most difficult verses to explain in the letter. And its difficulty is magnified because it's been used and misused many times over the years. Uh, And so we need to consider it carefully. Before we do that, I want to give a quick disclaimer. Okay, There's no way that I can deal with this verse completely in a couple of minutes. And so if it raises some questions or concerns, some of you won't care at all, but others may really be bugged by this. Just let me know. Call me, text me. Let's get together. Let's talk about it. I would love to talk about this in more detail with you. But Paul says quite clearly that God desires all people to be saved. Now, some of you may not see the problem here, so let me phrase it as a question. If God desires all people to be saved, then why doesn't he just save all people? And the most common answer to that question is because humans have free will, right? God wants everyone to be saved, but people reject the salvation that's being offered through Jesus, and that's why they're not. And in a sense, that is absolutely true. But the trouble is that Scripture also clearly teaches, I believe in many places, that none of us would accept Jesus without divine intervention. That salvation is really an act of God and that God obviously doesn't save everyone. So then what do we do with this verse? 
Well, some people suggest this. They'll say, well, given the context, because Paul mentions the Gentiles in verse 7, and because of the controversy in chapter 1, some people will explain this by saying, well, Paul, he doesn't mean literally that God wants all people to be saved, but instead he wants all kinds of people to be saved. God desires for all kinds of people to be saved. And that is a true statement. It's a true statement because Revelation clearly says that God will save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So it's not wrong to say that God will save all kinds of people. But we're also not in the habit, I'm not in the habit, I don't want you to be in the habit of inserting words into Scripture that aren't actually there. And I don't think in this case that it's necessary. I think we are safe to say what Paul says, that in a sense, God does desire all people to be saved. Paul meant exactly what he said. Now, in this way, what Paul, I think, is arguing is that the gospel is not a message for some people. The gospel is a message for all people. We should want all people to be saved. We should pray for salvation for everyone that we know, everyone that we meet. At the same time, there is a mystery in Scripture regarding the sovereignty of God over salvation and the free will of humans when it comes to salvation, okay? But that's a mystery, and we don't need to defend God by inserting words into Scripture that the Scriptures didn't put there, okay? That's a very brief explanation. There's a little bit of a gray area there. I understand that. I'm okay with some of that because it's God's word. I'm not God. But if that raises some questions for you, please let me know. Okay. He continues, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There it is again, right? Paul says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Now again, the Apostle Paul cannot possibly be arguing that all people will actually be saved by Christ's death. We're not universalist. The scriptures are not universalist, right? Christians do not believe that everyone's literally going to be saved one day. Some are lost, some are saved, okay? That is, that is true. So what must he be saying? He must be saying, in accordance with the rest of the testimony of Scripture, that Christ's death was sufficient as a ransom for all people. And that is, that is a true statement. Okay? Um, and so, again, some of you may have questions about this. Uh, I know I'm... This is one sermon, having to move on. So just let me know if you've got questions. We will talk. Um, okay, but it's not, it's not wrong to say that Christ's death is sufficient for all people uh, or that Jesus or that God wants all people to be saved.
Uh, Verse 7. For this reason, or for this, sorry, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul, again, uses himself as an example. And he is defending the idea that God's grace is being extended to all people. He's saying, this is why God sent me to the Gentiles. Because God wants the good news, the gospel, to be carried into the whole world. And so that's the end of our text for this morning. So what do we go home with? Why does this matter? Well, the first thing I want to say to you is, don't miss sight of the forest for the trees. Our tendency sometimes when we read Scripture is we look for the things that we have the most questions about or the most shocking statement or maybe something that we have a personal affinity for and we focus on that. And so, especially if you're Presbyterian, you get to this passage and you go, you hone right in on verse 4 and all you can think about is how do I make sense of that? How do I defend my views? Okay, And so um, our tendency when we do that, if we're focusing only on the verse that's maybe difficult to interpret or controversial, sometimes in doing that, we miss the clear logic of the text as it is altogether, right? And so what is the Apostle Paul actually saying in this passage as a whole? He's telling Timothy and the church in Ephesus, he's saying, we're in a battle for the faith. We're in a war. And this is something that we need to take seriously, church. Right? People's eternal souls are at stake. This is a big Deal. False teaching is a serious offense because it can keep people from hearing and understanding the true gospel. Souls are at risk because of this. And so he says, church, your primary role is to pray to God. The Lord of souls. To pray for people, to pray for all people, to pray specifically that they would come to know Jesus as Savior. So the big picture is that Paul is presenting this to the church as sort of a high stakes battle that they are a part of in which people are losing their souls and that they have a responsibility to pray. So to paraphrase the words of Richard Baxter as a pastor from the 17th century, he said something along these lines. He said, if you have the heart of a Christian, then please think about the lost people around you. He said, there is but a single step between them and death and hell. And if they die without Christ, they are lost forever. Is your heart made of stone? 
If you don't believe the word of God and the danger of sinners, then why are you a Christian yourself? But if you do believe it, then why do you not pray for the lost? And this is what I think Paul is trying to communicate. We get the impression from this letter that the Ephesian churches in particular are struggling with some exclusivity. You can see this also in the letter to the Ephesians. They they seem to have been treating the gospel like it was special knowledge for insiders. And that would explain Paul's instructions that he says, I want you to pray for all people to be saved. See, Paul had written the letter to the Ephesians just a few years earlier than this. And in that letter, he takes a couple of chapters to unpack the beauty of the gospel message. And what it meant for them, the Gentiles, that it was not just for the Jews. And so they were outsiders and they had been given the message of grace and been brought into the family. And now he's telling them, don't abandon that. Don't try to use the law and don't try to use the gospel as some kind of exclusive thing that's only for you. I want you to pray for everybody. But just a few years after the Ephesians letter was written, they're already struggling with this false teaching. And I want you to see something interesting. About 30 years later, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, which includes a letter from Jesus to the churches in Ephesus. And what it shows us is that Paul and Timothy's labors in Ephesus were not in vain. The church learned its lesson about tolerating false teachers. Listen to what Jesus says to them. This is Revelation 2, verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, right? So he says, all this stuff that Paul was telling you and Timothy, you did a good job with that. You listened. You're, you're keeping the faith protected from false teaching. But, Jesus says, verse 4, But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So 30 years later, Jesus tells this church, you're doing a good job of rejecting false teaching. Good job. 
But apparently, they've got this one serious flaw. Jesus says you have lost the love you had at first. Now we could talk about, I could do a whole sermon on what that probably means. Um, But if you have experienced the transforming grace of God for sinners, if you have felt God's love for you, that is something that you believe you don't deserve, that you haven't earned, if you've experienced that, that spills over specifically in your desire for others to experience that love. And so, when it says that they've lost the love they had at first, I think that at least it means, means other things perhaps, but at least it means their desire to see lost people saved. To pray for it. To long for it. To work for it. As Paul has charged them in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so what I want to say to you very simply. Church, this is, according to Jesus, a matter of repentance for us. For Christ's fellowship, for the the American church, I think in general, but for Christ's fellowship... Right, good theology is important. It's vitally important to understand who God is, who we are, what the gospel really is. But equally important is that we have a soft heart for people who need Jesus. That we in experiencing God's love for us, that that love spills over into an affection, a godly affection for people who don't know Christ to come to know Christ. To experience the same grace that we've been given. Not to hold it in exclusivity or to lazily act like it doesn't matter in our own lives or anybody else's, which is more the American problem. Probably. But we should commit ourselves to both. To being solid in our theology and our understanding of Scripture, but also to be approachable and welcoming and seeking and praying for people to know Christ. Because in both cases, Paul would say, Jesus would say, in both cases, people's souls are at stake. Either one without the other is not good. Let's pray. Father, we come before You in humility. We ask You to give us sharp minds to recognize and to separate truth from error. Help us to know Scripture. 
to know it so well that any error would be obvious to us. And this is important. Father, would you also give us soft hearts? Would you make us eager to pray for and to pursue your lost sheep? Because we so quickly forget why we're here and what's at stake. And so, Father, would you help us? Would you help Christ Fellowship to be a church that is both solid and approachable? Be a church that is more like Christ Jesus in both His regard for Your Word and His compassion for the lost. That's why we're here. That's why any of us as Christians are still on the earth. It's why the church exists. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the world. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.